starting at chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourself also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of a sober mind, so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Heavenly Father, we pray for Pastor Robin this morning. We ask you to put words in his mouth. Help us to have open hearts and open minds so that we can learn from your word what you would have us learn this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, here I am giving my first, my first sermon since I was installed as a pastor. I have to tell you, every time I hear that someone used that word installed as we were preparing for the service a few weeks ago, I was deeply tempted to bring along a screwdriver. <laughs> One of the realities of um, being in the pool uh, on a regular basis is that people get to know all kinds of stuff about you that they wouldn't otherwise know. So, for instance, and you should keep this in mind if you ever invite me over to dinner or anything like that. Um, That wasn't a hint. That wasn't a hint. But you should keep this in mind that I often to leave when we're out for dinner at friends' places. To be fair, I often find it hard to let guests leave our home when we have people over dinner as well. You see, I have a problem. I have a problem with false endings. I think you know what I mean. You know, you know the, the evenings, it's been a lovely evening. Conversations kind of winding down. And there's that dead spot on the, screen, on, on the stage again. Um, and you're each saying, everybody's saying things that give the impression that the evening is drawing to a close. And then one of you says something that starts a whole other train of conversation. And instead of heading for the door, you settle into another half hour of talking. 
while your spouses glare at you from the other side of the room. <laughs> Note that I... Yeah, been there, done that, yes. <laughs> I say spouses because I don't think this is something that is, that is only, you know, an ailment that is only you know, um, restricted to the male gender. Um, however, I take comfort in the fact that at least some of the apostles seem to have the same problem. Um, Paul has quite a number of false endings in his letters. You know, he's going along and you're pretty sure he's coming to the end of the letter and there's even a doxology, you know, a little praise of God. And then he goes on for a few more chapters. Um, And Peter does exactly the same thing here. This passage ends with, in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Which sounds, I think that sounds really ending-ish. Don't you? That sounds really ending-ish. But then he goes on for another chapter. But Mark already covered chapter 5 earlier this month at my installation. There's that word again. So we're going to end the series in First Peter with this ending here. But since we're finishing the series, I think it'd be a good idea for us just, just to quickly review what we've covered. So we started out with the church as a joyful scattered people. And we were talking about how the recipients of this church, of the story of this letter, were scattered around what is now northwest Turkey. Then we talked about the church as a holy people. And Vic gave one of what I think is one of the clearest messages on holiness I've ever heard. When he talked about how um, we consecrate ourselves to God, we dedicate ourselves to him. And he is the one who sanctifies us. He's the one who makes us holy. Then, um, then Dindy talked about the church as a royal priestly people and what it meant to be priests. I talked about the church as a submitted people and the importance of respecting the authorities where we live. At my installation, Mark talked about the church as a humble people. And the following week, um, Steve talked about the church as a suffering people. I'm still wondering about the timing of that. Like the week after I get installed... Steve talks about the church as a suffering people. I'm going, to, I'm going to choose to believe there was no hidden message there. And today we're finishing up with talking about the church as an expectant people. So a couple of weeks ago, I was leading communion. And I talked about how in communion we both look back to Jesus' death and resurrection and look I confess it's one of my favorite themes that we stand in the in-between time, that um, we stand between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, that we stand between his death and suffering and his glorious appearing, and that that tension should be something that shapes our lives. And it's not just one of my favorite themes, it's you find it throughout the New Testament as well. And First Peter 4 is one of those places. And then in this passage, Peter has us looking both ways. Back to Jesus' suffering on the cross and looking forward to his future return. And he expects both events to have an effect on our lives today. 
So let's start with looking back. He says, therefore, since Christ suffered in the body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because those who have suffered in their bodies are done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Now, normally, when there's a therefore in a, at the start of a passage of scripture, I follow the advice of a, an old Bible teacher who said, if you find a therefore, go back and find what the there is for. Therefore is there for. But we don't have to look back because Peter actually tells us. He says, therefore, since Christ suffered in his body. He's referring back to verse 18 of the previous chapter. He says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. I think it's always good to remember when you're reading Peter's letters, when he talks about the crucifixion, that he was there. That this is something very personal for him. He saw his friend and teacher given up to the authorities. He saw them beat him. He saw him torture him. He saw them crucify him. For us, this is something that we imagine in our minds. Or we, we think of a, a movie we've seen or a picture we've seen. But for Peter, who's writing this, it was an actual memory of what he saw. And this is the focal point of our faith. That Jesus died and was buried on, in the tomb and was raised on the third day, made alive by the Spirit. Just as an aside, we often like to say that Jesus rose from the dead. Um, the New Testament hardly ever says that. Jesus is never the subject of that sentence. He's always the object. The New Testament is much more likely to say that Jesus was raised from the dead. Where God the Father is the one doing the raising. Or in this case, it says he was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Where it's the Holy Spirit who's raising Jesus from the dead. Because, I mean, if Jesus was really dead, right, this is part of our, this is part of our doctrine, right, that Jesus actually died on the cross, then he couldn't do anything, right? That's part of being dead. So just as he had throughout his earthly ministry, he had to rely upon his Father to come through for him and for the Holy Spirit to act in power to raise him from the dead. So this is actually one of those passages where we see the Holy Trinity at work redeeming humanity. This is a Trinitarian passage, right? It says, Jesus died to bring us to God the Father, and having died, was made alive again by the Spirit. That's the whole Holy Trinity at work together for our salvation. It's wonderful stuff. And it's actually stuff that we need to be sure of as we talk with our neighbors and friends, because the Holy Trinity is one of those Difficult passages for our neighbors. One of those difficult doctrines for our neighbors. So this is a, a good passage to see. See, it says here in scripture, this is, you know, all three members of the Godhead acting together to save humanity. So what does Peter want us to learn from this? 
He says, arm yourselves with the same attitude as Jesus. Now, sometimes when I'm reading theology or listening to sermons, which are actually just spoken theology, I get the impression that I make a choice, right? I need to choose between the Jesus who died on the cross as a sacrifice, atoning sacrifice for my sins, or the Jesus who is the perfect human being who is a model of how I should live my life. Some, acts, some parts of the church like to focus on the first Jesus. Other parts of the church like to focus on the second Jesus. But they're both the same Jesus, right? Right? Peter's point here isn't that Jesus opened the way to the Father. He's already talked about that in chapter 3. His point here is that Jesus did the will of God, and we should do the same. How I think his argument, his argument runs. He says, Jesus lived to fulfill the will of God. As a result of that, he suffered and died for sin. As we enter into his suffering through baptism, he talks about baptism in chapter 3, we're done with sin. And so we too can live to fulfill the will of God just as Jesus did. So Peter's argument about doing the will of God is a lot like Paul's argument about humility in Philippians 2. You know, having the same mind among you as was also in Christ Jesus, who being the very nature of God, etc., etc., etc. That sounds a lot like, therefore, suffered in his body, arm yourself also with the same attitude. This is the way Jesus lived. This is the way you should live. And live for the will of God. Now, there's no way we can do that in our own strength. I think we all recognize that. But then, something we often forget is that when Jesus took on, when the word of God took on a human body and came to live among us as a man, he also made himself dependent upon the Holy Spirit to carry out his ministry. You see that in Luke, particularly. In Luke, everything Jesus do- does is in the Holy Spirit. He's full of joy of the Holy Spirit. All kinds of things in the Holy Spirit. That Jesus carried out his ministry in the power of the Spirit. So it's no, it's no good. I've heard this. People argue, well, Jesus is, Jesus is Jesus. He's special. Jesus was the Son of God. You know, I can't live like that. He doesn't leave us with that option. We're called to live out the will of God just as Jesus was. And we're equipped to do it through the power of the Spirit just as Jesus was. Now, even though Jesus took on an earthly body, he was sinless, right? So he didn't have all the junk in his life that we have in our lives to mess up that process. So I recognize, I'm not saying that we, I'm not suggesting Christians can live sinless lives and all that kind of stuff. That's not what I'm suggesting. We have junk in our lives that we need to deal with. All the more reason then why we need to come come to him on a regular basis, asking for forgiveness and cleansing so that junk in our lives does not plug up the, the process of receiving the power from the spirit to live the life that God's called us to. Then in verses 3 to 5, Peter talks about the consequences of living 
for the will of God. And basically what he says is people will think you're weird. If you live for the will of God, people will think you're weird. I had a conversation with some people uh, just last week um, who were saying that the security guy at their apartment is getting very suspicious of them because they're having meetings in their home. Now, if they'd been having parties where people got drunk, um, shouted and sung loudly, broke furniture, all that kind of stuff, fought, fought with each other, that would have been normal. That would have been normal. The people I've talked to are nodding their heads. Uh, but they were having people over to the house. And they all stayed sober. No one broke anything. Nobody was loud or rude. So they must be doing something illegal, right? <laughs> Peter got it right in verse 4. He says, they are surprised that you do not wild living and they heap abuse on you because you don't fit in with the lifestyle that they expect you to. And this is where Peter starts pivoting towards the future. Verse five, he says, but they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Because really, if this is all there is, then it makes perfect sense to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die, right? That makes sense. If all you have is this life, then that makes sense. But that, is, that isn't the case, is it? There is more than just this life. We will have to give an account of our lives when we stand before the risen Lord. So we don't live like those around us because we have an eternal perspective on life. Then comes one of those strange verses in the Bible. Verse 6. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. This verse has been the subject of a lot of debate. I'm not going to get into the whole debate. But I do want to say it doesn't mean that Jesus went to people who were, and preached to people who were already in the grave and dead. That's not what it says. Because that would mean you have a second chance after you're dead. And scripture says clearly that's not the case. Okay? What it is talking about, remember, remember this, this, this letter is written to churches who were suffering persecution, persecution. Suffering is a theme throughout the whole letter. They were, they were suffering because of their faith. So it's talking about believers Probably people that the, the, the recipients of this letter knew personally who had suffered and died for the faith. And Peter is saying that they were judged by human beings and put to death. But now they live for God in the spirit. Just like Jesus in chapter 3 verse 18. In fact, the two verses are almost direct parallels of each other. Except in chapter 3, it's Jesus that is judged, by, judged and condemned to death and killed and raised by the Spirit. And in chapter 4, it's the martyrs, the people that have lost their lives for the gospel, who are judged by men and condemned to death and then raised by the Spirit. 
Because this is always a potential outcome of living the way Jesus did. If you put the will of God first, it might just get you killed. But the good news is that although people can kill the body, God's life will continue to live in you through the power of the Spirit, and he will raise you from the dead. Now, there's some real encouragement if you're suffering. Whether you're suffering for the faith, whether you're suffering in terms of sickness, whatever. Though we die in the body, the life of the Spirit will bring us back to life again. This is the hope of the resurrection. So, we've looked back to the past, to what Jesus is suffering, to Jesus' suffering for doing the will of God. We've looked at how we're called to live to do the will of God now, and how that can lead to suffering, even death. And then Peter calls us to look at the future with expectation. Verse 7 says, The end of all things is near, therefore be alert and of sober mind. There's a tension in living as a Christian. This is one of these things. Peter says, The end of all things is near. And he's clearly looking looking towards Jesus' second coming. And yet, this was written almost 2,000 years ago. So, we live every day. Every every Christian lives every day, every generation, every century, with the understanding that Jesus' return is sure, even if we don't know when it's going to come. And that assurance has an effect on our lives. I like to say that we live today in light of God's future. We live today in light of God's future. And that's something that's actually quite unique to biblical faith. Most traditions, most religions look back to some bygone lost golden age and seek to to recover that. And some of our own Christian traditions have that tendency as well. We idealize the days of our or the days of our grandparents or whatever as being more Christian. That may be. But the focus of the New Testament is never on reassuring some lost past. It's always on looking forward to and expecting Jesus' establishment of his future kingdom. We don't look back to some some lost golden age, some mythical golden age. We look forward to Jesus' return and his establishment of his kingdom. So if our eyes are focused on the future, how does that affect our lives today? Well, there's been various responses in the history of the church. Um, One response has been to try and figure out exactly when Jesus will return. Which is... You know, I came to faith in the 70s, uh, and there was a great deal of um, excitement about Jesus' return. You had books like 88 Reasons While Jesus Will Return in 1988. <laughs> he had a lot of those left over in 1989. <laughs> Despite the fact we're told explicitly not to do that, right? <laughs> Another response has been to withdraw from society. 
and just wait for Jesus' return. Some people actually withdraw into the wilderness. Some people just disconnect from the Actually, what Peter suggests is quite different. Because the next few verses, right after that, sound like a long list of commands, but they're not really. There's only two commands. It says, be alert and be of sober mind as you pray. Everything else is a description of what happens when you live today in light of God's future. He says, be alert and of sober mind. And the picture is of someone who's able to make wise judgments. Somebody who is aware of what's going on around them. Um, And not just that, but able to respond appropriately. Now, some of us are better at that than others. Some of us live in our heads. um, And, you know, totally oblivious to what's going on around us. Um, I tend to be in that way, in that category, I'm afraid. Thankfully, I have a wife who notices details and kicks me under the table. Uh, But all of us are called to be aware of what's happening around us and respond appropriately. First appropriate response we have is to pray. He says, be alert and of sober minds so that you can pray or as you pray. So this is praying with our eyes open. Not necessarily literally with your eyes open, but praying with an awareness of what's happening in the world around you. In your family, your church, your city, your country, the world. Bringing those things to the Lord as we look to his return. Bringing what's happening in his world to his, to his throne. Believing that he is going to come back. And as we do that, we're also called to live out the values of the kingdom. And that's what Peter goes on to talk about. He says, loving each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. The true mark of Christian community is love. So Jesus said, right? They'll know we are his disciples by how we love one another. Doctrine is important. We serve the God of truth. Morality is important. We serve the holy God. But without love, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, it's just dry and lifeless legalism. One of my favorite Christian songwriters is, uh, I'm going to show my age here now, so is actually Larry Norman. Anybody remember Larry Norman? A few old people, yes, okay. He should get more respect because Larry Norman basically single-handedly invented contemporary Christian music. Just saying, okay? (laughs) He's got a song that goes, you can be a righteous rocker, you can be a holy roller, But without love, you ain't nothing. You ain't nothing without love. And when Peter says love covers over a multitude of sins, he's not just saying that we should ignore other people's sins. He's actually saying something deeper than that. Because cover over is the root meaning of the word that's used in the Old Testament to talk about God's forgiveness of sins. So Psalm 32.1 said, says, blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. So Peter is actually calling us to treat one another with the same grace that God has 
poured out to us as individuals. If we're aware of how much God has forgiven, or if I'm aware of how much God has forgiven me for, then I'm much more likely to treat others with grace and love. And that's what God's calling us. That's what Peter's calling us to. And if we are people who look towards Christ's return, it will result in us loving others in the church. It will also result in us loving visitors. Peter talks about offering hospitality to one another without grumbling. Again, again in the Old Testament, sorry, in the New Testament, hospitality is presented as a core Christian virtue. Paul talks about it in Romans, 1 Timothy, and Titus. The writer to the Hebrews mentioned it, mentions it, as do Peter and John. Eight times in the New Testament, we're told to be hospitable. It's included in lists like this, alongside loving one another and being self-controlled, things that we think of automatically think of as being part of being Christian. Yet, apart from myself and a colleague that used to serve in, we used to serve together in Afghanistan, I don't think I've ever heard anybody actually preach a sermon on hospitality. But it is an expression of our faith. And it's one of the New Testament marks of believers. To have strangers in your home. That's actually what the word means in Greek. Philoxenia, it means loving strangers. Some of us are stranger than others. So therefore need more love. <laughs> now, obviously, I believe in this strongly. That's part of our ministry, Marilyn and myself. Uh, for most of our married lives, we've had people living in our home. Um, we have a hospitality home here this year so far. We've had 55 visitors living with us as they come for various reasons. Um, that's, that's what hospitality ministry looks like. But just because, just in the same way that people who don't have a prayer ministry, people who don't have a hospitality ministry still have a calling to be hospitable. That may mean having people in your home. But it may mean just, you know, taking the time to greet strangers on a Sunday and this thing is going in and in like crazy. Uh, it, may, it may just mean taking the time to greet people, visitors after church on a Sunday, and going for lunch with them, inviting them, welcoming them, welcoming them. Welcoming them. <laughs> Excuse me, I need a glass of water here. <laughs> That's part of our call as Christians. Let me encourage you to do that. So prayer, hospitality, and finally service. The last way that Peter describes living today in the light of God's future is to serve one another. Sorry, I just, I just lost my, part, my place. Technology is wonderful until it's not. He says, using whatever gift you have received to serve others. So we all have gifts. I think we agree upon that. Um, 
not all of us have the same gifts. We can upon that as well. And not all of us have the same amount of gifts. That's just reality. Some people are more gifted than others. But here, he doesn't talk about the importance of how many gifts or how great your gifts are. He says, use whatever gift you have received to serve others. It's not the kind of gift or the size. It's how you use it. So the development um, disabled person in the church who all they can do to serve is set up the chairs for Sunday school on a Sunday. God is just as pleased with their service as he is with the mega church pastor who has multiple giftings in preaching and teaching and leadership and prophecy and all that kind of stuff. Because it's not about the gift. It's about using what you have to serve others. And Peter lumps all, all the gifts into two categories. He talks about speaking gifts and serving gifts, right? So speaking gifts would be things preaching, teaching, prophecy, wisdom, knowledge, evangelism, encouragement. And service gifts would be things like administration, helps, mercy, giving, and probably actually healing and miracles as well. Neither is better, neither is more important than the other. Although the church has tended to honor those with speaking gifts, people like me, over those with serving gifts. And that's wrong, just to put it bluntly. Just because I stand up here and God has given me the ability to speak, doesn't make my gifting any better than you. Because it's not about the gift. It's about whether you use it to serve others. He says, if you speak, you should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If you serve, you should do so with the strength God survives, so that in all things, God may be praised through Christ Jesus. And that's the point. That in all things, God be praised. So we're an expectant people. We live in between the times, between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. So we look back to his example of living out the will of God, and we draw on his grace to do the same thing. And we look forward to turn to set up his kingdom of love of grace. And in the meantime, we live by the standards of the kingdom, loving one another, welcoming strangers, Serving one another. And all the time. That God's will be done on earth. Until he comes again. Let's pray shall we. Lord Jesus. Lord thank you that you equip us with all we need to do all good things. In the time between your first coming and your second coming. Lord, help us to be encouraged by that knowledge to step out, to serve others, to welcome others, to love others, to pray for others, knowing, Lord, that you equip us with all we need for that and that you will return and we look forward to that day. In your name we pray. Amen.